Thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's November 2022. This week, I consider modern-day financial regulation and what Alexander Hamilton might have thought about it. You can think of the question as, what would Hamilton do? Then I consider, using a recent opinion from the U.S. Court of Appeals from the Fifth Circuit as a test case, whether those thoughts offer any guidance about the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, taking into account the trial court rules of procedure and evidence that guard against a witness giving speculative testimony. I conclude that any analysis of Framer's intent on this sort of technical question about modern-day finance may be more illusory than productive. The case is Community Financial Services Association of America versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, an October 2022 opinion from a panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit based in New Orleans. In this case, business organizations challenged a regulation of the payday loan industry that had been issued by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, also called the CFPB, the CFPB being a very powerful regulator put in place by Congress after the 2008 financial crisis. Among other points made in the case, the business groups argued that the CFPB was structured unconstitutionally because its funding mechanism violated the Appropriations Clause of the U.S. Constitution. The Fifth Circuit agreed in an opinion written by Judge Corey Wilson, based in Mississippi, and joined by Judges Dom Willett and Kurt Engelhardt from Texas and Louisiana, respectively. The case's holding divides from seven other federal courts that have considered this argument and rejected it. The Fifth Circuit's opinion in this case leads to the question I posed at the beginning of this podcast. Does considering the topic, what would Hamilton do, help us decide how to read the Constitution in the context of modern-day financial regulation. The background is straightforward. The Appropriations Clause of the Constitution says, No money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequence of appropriations made by law. It has been generally understood by the courts to mean that the U.S. Treasury cannot pay out money unless appropriated by an act of Congress. The CFPB is funded by the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is in turn funded outside the congressional appropriations process by assessments on banks. The funds that are allocated to the CFPB are then maintained in an account that only it may access. The plaintiffs argued that this structure violated the Appropriations Clause because it made the CFPB, in their words, double insulated from congressional review. Seven federal courts have previously rejected that argument, including the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which is recognized as having a particular expertise in the area of administrative law, the law that governs the structure of federal administrative agencies. Summarizing generally, these opinions noted that many modern financial regulators, such as the Federal Reserve itself, the FDIC, the controller of the currency, To avoid the phenomenon of agency capture, where agencies become beholden to the businesses that they regulate and tend to follow the desires of that business, to avoid that phenomenon, these agencies are funded by assessments made outside the usual budgeting process. Because that funding is done pursuant to acts of Congress, those courts reason that an appropriation made by law within the meaning of the Appropriations Clause had occurred, and thus the constitutional requirement was satisfied. The Fifth Circuit saw matters otherwise. It relied upon citations from several drafters of the Constitution, including the ubiquitous Alexander Hamilton, and observed, based on those examinations of the historical record, and from those citations, the Court concluded that the Appropriations Clause, in the words of the Court, 
embodies the framers' objectives of maintaining the necessary partition among the several departments and ensuring transparency and accountability between the people and their government. The court then concluded, Wherever the line between a constitutionally and unconstitutionally funded agency may be, this unprecedented arrangement crosses it, referring to the double insulation structure we talked about earlier. The opinion acknowledged the different results reached by the other federal courts, but respectfully disagreed with them in light of the CFPB's particular structure, coupled with its considerable influence on the economy. Originalism is, of course, a valid interpretive technique, and the Supreme Court has endorsed a broad reach for the concept of originalism. We need look no further than the recent Dobbs v. Jackson women's health case, where the Supreme Court relied heavily upon its review of the abortion laws of 1868, mind you, a time when women could not vote, to overrule Roe v. Wade is inconsistent with the historic understanding of the 14th Amendment. That said, the journey from the word appropriations today in the modern financial regulatory environment and governmental structure to appropriations as may have been understood by Alexander Hamilton and his peers is not necessarily a smooth passage. Consider some other historic facts. In the late 1700s, the federal government had no administrative agencies that issued financial regulations much less a meaningful central bank, such as the Federal Reserve, that could handle such an agency's finances. The phenomenon of an agency's capture by the businesses it regulates was unknown because there was no regulation, and thus nothing to capture. And since that time, the nation's financial markets, while experiencing extraordinary success and growing into the largest economy in the world, have along the way experienced many devastating panics, crashes, crises, and recessions most recently in 2008. Here I turn to two rules of court procedure, not directly relevant to the issues in the CFPB case and thus not discussed in that opinion, but instructive in thinking about when speculation may go too far to be helpful in a legal analysis. In the courtroom, we do not allow speculative testimony. For example, Texas Rule of Evidence 602, a witness may testify to a matter only if evidence is introduced sufficient to support a finding that the witness has personal knowledge of the matter. This may be the most common objection to testimony made in courtrooms across the state and across the country. A witness begins to testify about what they saw, and then somewhere along the way, they begin to move into what they think may have happened, or they begin to think about what someone else might have been motivated by that was on the scene of the accident or the events that they're describing. They draw the speculation objection and the judge applying a rule like Rule 602 will likely sustain unless the witness actually saw, heard, or otherwise perceived the events at issue. Rule 602 and the concept of speculative testimony applies to fact testimony, people who saw things, experienced the things that give rise to a legal claim that is brought to court. Trial courts also entertain expert testimony, opinion testimony, on issues such as the standard of care for how you drive a truck, the measure of damage in a case where a business has failed and you're trying to figure out what the lost profits are for some years into the future. And here there are some very technical requirements. They are allowed to testify to opinions if, generally speaking, three things are shown. These are often in the federal courts called the Daubert Principles. Most states have adopted something like that with a name of a case in their state system. The principles are that the witness needs to be adequately trained as a first initial matter. Second, that they are basing their opinion upon reliable data. 
And for example, in the lost profits analysis that we talked about, you need to have good, solid accounting data, not just speculation on the back of an envelope. And then third, you have to apply a reliable methodology to the data using your training. That varies depending on what the subject matter is, but the phrase you often see in cases is, an expert cannot say, it is so because I say it is so. Ideally, a qualified expert would point to a well-known technique in a textbook, something taught in school, something they personally have instructed others on, that is a systematic, well-known, and reliable method of analyzing a certain kind of data and drawing conclusions from it. Let's apply those principles to the question of what Alexander Hamilton might have thought about modern-day financial regulation. I am not a historian, although I have studied history in school and studied history as part of my training as a lawyer. So I'm sort of there on the first requirement about education and training. As to the second factor about reliable data, we have a well-developed historic record about what the framers of the Constitution thought about what they were doing, and a particularly loud one from Alexander Hamilton, who, as we know from the famous musical, wrote a great deal about a lot of subjects. Now, there's certainly a lot to look at. Do we know everything that the framers thought? No. But we do know a great deal, and we have relied upon those data sources in making determinations about other constitutional issues. While it may not be a perfect data set, it is a set of data that is used in this kind of analysis. That brings us to the third question, though, of a reliable methodology. Historians have methodologies that they apply to reach conclusions about the past. Here, we're not really doing that. We're trying to decide if a general principle that they stated in the 1790s is something that carries forward and applies meaningfully to the context of modern-day financial regulation. I have some training in history and extensive training in law. While I have a broad-based historic record to draw upon, I'm not sure what methodology I would draw upon to try to figure out what Alexander Hamilton or any of the other framers of the Constitution would actually think about this issue. My inability to pinpoint what methodology I would be using to offer expert testimony on this topic does suggest that relying on our conclusions about what Alexander Hamilton or other framers thought about this kind of modern-day technical topic may not be as productive as it first appears. Alexander Hamilton was clearly very financially savvy. He was an advocate of a strong federal government. If he were brought forward in time, it is, I think, very much an open question what he would think about the Appropriations Clause in the context of modern-day financial regulation. He clearly thought the Appropriations Clause was important. He said so, and said so many times. But he also knew the federal government had to be strong, and he was also aware of what would happen if the financial structure of the new country did not function well. Absent an appearance by him in court to give his personal knowledge about the fact of what he thought, we are forced to rely on opinion analysis. And the techniques that we must use to provide those opinions are ones that would probably not be accepted in the trial of a case. As a result, the question, what would Hamilton think, appears to not be that helpful in analyzing organizations and activities that did not exist during the life of Alexander Hamilton. And we mentioned the Dobbs case a moment ago. In overruling Roe, Dobbs warned about over-reliance on a single, in its words, capacious term such as liberty. It noted, and here I quote the opinion, historians of ideas had cataloged more than 200 different senses 
in which the term had been used, referring to the term liberty, which is the term used in the 14th Amendment. To be sure, the word appropriation does not get people as excited as the word liberty, but 200 years of crisis-filled economic history can also produce, to use the Dobbs word, different senses of what a word means. And those differences pose challenges for an originalist inquiry about the meaning of the word appropriation when applied to facts and circumstances that not only did not exist at the time the Constitution was framed, what would have been difficult to even explain to the framers in light of how they understood their country to be operating. In this episode of Coal Mind, I looked at the weight we should give to our opinions about what Alexander Hamilton or other framers might have thought about financial regulation and how much weight we should give that kind of issue when we apply the Constitution to modern-day financial regulatory structures. I conclude that while originalism is a valid technique, and we have a strong historic record about what the framers thought about clauses such as the Appropriations Clause that are prominent features of the Constitution, it is difficult to bring those concepts forward and apply them in analysis in a way that would pass muster down the hall from the Court of Appeals in the trial court in testimony in a case. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to keep listening. You can keep up with this podcast by subscribing to it on any of the main directories. I encourage you, if you enjoyed this episode, to join other happy listeners and leave a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon. Mm -hmm.